As Peter draws his second epistle to a close, he focuses on the second coming of Christ. The doctrine of Christ's return was under attack by the antinomian Gnostics. The scoffers' denial of his return was critical to their immorality and impurity. If Christ does not return, then there is no coming judgment, and they are free to live as they please. Peter urges his readers to not only be mindful of these scoffers, but to be mindful of the scriptures. The scriptures are critical in guarding us against false teaching. And so to his previous exhortation to be mindful, Peter now exhorts us to be not ignorant of two great truths, the doctrines of God and the end times. These two great doctrines were under attack by the false teachers. See, the question regarding the promise of the second coming is an attack on the end times doctrine. This doctrine is known as eschatology. The question is also an attack on the doctrine of God known as theology proper. The prophecies of Christ's second coming are promises made by God who guarantees their fulfillment. By questioning the completion of these promises, the false teachers made God out to be a liar. As well, they claim that God was uninvolved in his creation. Such a view is known as antinomianism. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, Peter now exhorts us to be not ignorant of two great truths. Be not ignorant of two great truths. And so in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we're going to see those truths about God. The truths about God. And then in verses 10 through 13, we'll see the truths about the end times. The truths about the end times. And so beginning here in verses 8 and 9, Peter admonishes us first to be not ignorant about God. In particular, Peter states that God is not affected by time and is not slow about his promises. Let's begin with verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is not affected by time. In verse 8, Peter stresses that God is not affected by time. Again, Peter addresses his readers here as beloved. Fatherly, sacrificial love is behind this exhortation. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. The verb escape means to escape knowledge or to be ignorant of something. Peter used the same term in 2 Peter 3.5. It escapes their notice to describe how the false teachers willingly chose to forget that God created the heavens and the earth. And so Peter reminds us not to be ignorant of biblical truths like false teachers. One fact believers should not be ignorant of is the truth that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Peter's statement is an allusion to Psalm 90 in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. In Psalm 90, Moses contrasts God's eternality with the transitory nature of human life. His point is that God transcends time. As the creator of time, God is not bound by time's limitation. Hence, he does not grow weak or old. 
Therefore, we need not fret over any delay. The delay does not mean that God diminished over time and forgot His promises. He transcends time and will send His Son again at the appointed time. Now, some interpret the phrase, one day is like a thousand years, to mean that human history will last 6,000 years, followed by a 1,000-year reign of Christ. This idea is based on the days of creation. Proponents purport the idea that since God created over six days and rested on the seventh, then 2 Peter 3.8 implies that each day of creation is equal to 1,000 years of human history. Thus, six days equals 6,000 years of human history. Now, such an interpretation is flawed in light of the rules of literal interpretation. According to the rules of Bible uh, interpretation, each biblical writing, that is, each word, sentence, and book, was recorded in a written language and followed normal grammatical meanings, including figurative language. Both Moses and Peter employed figurative language. One day is like a thousand years. The term like is figurative in both the Hebrew and the Greek, and it is used to show comparison. Thus, the text is not rendered a day is a thousand years to the Lord, but instead, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. In other words, what would take humanity a thousand years to accomplish, God can do in one day. Peter's point then is that while much time has passed since Christ's first advent, some 2,000 years from humanity's perspective, it is a seemingly insignificant amount of time to God. God is not affected by time. A second fact believers should not be ignorant of is the truth that the Lord is not slow about His promises. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, a second fact we need to know or not be ignorant of is the truth that the Lord is not slow about His promises. Because God is not beholden to time, He is not slow in keeping His promises. Now the promise refers back to 2 Peter 3, 4, the promise of Christ's second coming. The verb slow means to delay or be late. Peter's point is that though much time has passed, the second coming of Christ is not late. Consider that God promised Adam and Eve that the Messiah would come via the seed of the woman. From humanity's perspective, 4,000 years passed before the Messiah came. Nevertheless, he came at the appointed time. Galatians 4.4 states, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. The fullness of the time refers to God's appointed times. Just as Christ came the first time at the appointed time, so he will return at God's appointed time. Back at 2.3. For though the vision is yet for the appointed time, it hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. The phrase, as some count slowness, refers to the false teachers. 
They assumed God's delay was an admission of God's disinterest in humanity. In reality, they did not understand the purpose of God's delay. Peter revealed that Christ's return is delayed because God is patient. The term patient describes God as long-suffering. That is, he is not hasty in his anger or in meeting out punishment. Previously in his first epistle, Peter referred to God's patience while Noah was building the ark, 1 Peter 3.20, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the day of Noah. God was patient then and is patient now. Why? Because he is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is God's patience that draws people to repentance. Romans 2.4 Or do you think lately of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now repentance is a change of mind where one turns from rebellion to submission to God. It is a change of heart where one turns from hating God to loving Him. It is a change of will or behavior where one turns from disobedience to obedience. And as such, repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2.38 Peter said to them, Repent each of you, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who do not repent will perish. Luke 13.3 I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now the question must be raised, is God's desire for all to repent indicative of all being saved? The term wishing means to yearn for something strongly. It does not refer to God's determinate will, but his desire for humanity. It is God's strong desire for all to repent. Paul implies the same truth in 2 Timothy 2.4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Furthermore, the prophet Ezekiel declared in Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Thus, God strongly desires that every person come to repentance and be saved. The term all refers to every person individually. Of the 110 times pas, all, is used in the New Testament, it is always used in an unrestrictive, unlimited manner. In other words, the term is not limited or defined to refer only to a specific portion of the populace. For example, Romans 3.23 declares, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Also, 2 Timothy 2.6 states that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. So to answer the question as to whether or not all will be saved, the answer is no. While God strongly desires all to repent, he forces no one to repent. The command to repent and believe the gospel assumes the individual's ability to choose freely. In fact, Christ stated that people of their own volition refuse to come to him for salvation. John 
and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Because of free will, individuals who refuse to repent and believe are without excuse. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel will perish. That is, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Thus, while Christ died for every person, his death is only sufficient for those who repent and believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So Peter's first admonition is for believers to not be ignorant about God. Peter's second admonition is to be not ignorant about the end times. Specifically, he's addressing the day of the Lord and the day of God. The use of the term day in this text depicts a period that like an actual biblical day, begins with evening or sunset, and ends with the next evening or sunset. And so the parts of a prophetic day follow this pattern, sunset, night, sunrise, daytime, sunset. Now in verse 10, Peter's going to address the day of the Lord, and then in verses 11 to 13, he will address the day of God. Let's look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now the day of the Lord is a critical premise in the prophecies of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah. Prophetically, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture and ends with the renewed heavens and earth. As, the, as we'll demonstrate the rapture coincides with the sunset. Tribulation coincides with the night. Christ's return coincides with the sunrise. The millennial kingdom coincides with the day. And the rude heavens and earth coincide with the sunset. Now Peter assures us that the day of the Lord will come. The verb will come appears first in the Greek text, making it emphatic and assuring the event certainty. The day of the Lord is an appointed time in which God is going to judge. And when God's judgment is passed, there will be no more second chances. That the day of the Lord is sure underscores the necessity of proclaiming the gospel of repentance to all. Acts 17, 30-31, He said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Now the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a statement echoed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night because there's no warning signs. Nowhere in Scripture 
are we commanded to be looking for the signs of the times. The signs of Matthew 24 are for those living in the tribulation. Any professed believer who sees those signs is in for a rude awakening. You see those signs, you're living in the tribulation. Instead, we ought to be looking for our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And when the rapture occurs, Jesus will appear in the sky for his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. From Pentecost till rapture, all believers will be caught up into heaven, both the living and the dead. Following the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation begins. Its primary focus is on bringing an end to Gentile domination and bringing Israel to repentance. Immediately after the tribulation, Christ will return. Matthew 24, 29-30 and 25-31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Christ's second coming to earth will be literal and bodily. Following His return, Christ establishes kingdom on earth for 1,000 years, after which it will merge with God's eternal kingdom. Daniel 2.44 in, those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now, as one examines the day of the Lord, it becomes evident that a significant feature of the end is judgment. The day begins with the removal of the church and the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit removed, his ministry of holding back wickedness ceases, paving the way for a series of judgments throughout the tribulation. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, he will judge the living, inviting the righteous into his kingdom, and casting the unrighteous into hell. Finally, after Christ's millennial reign, there will be the great white throne judgment, in which God the Father will judge all the unregenerate, both the living and the dead, and cast them into the lake of fire for all eternity. Peter focuses on a specific aspect of the day of the Lord, namely the destruction of the present heavens and earth by fire, as mentioned back in 2 Peter 3.7. The destruction of the present heavens and earth is the sunset event of the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord concludes, three events will occur. The heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. First, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The term heavens is always plural in the scripture. And as such, we know that there are three heavens mentioned in scripture. The third heaven in which God dwells, 
2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, i.e. the abode of God. There is the stellar heaven, Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, literally the stellar heavens, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then there is the atmospheric heaven, James 5, 18, he prayed again in the sky, literally the atmospheric heaven, poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So there's three heavens. Now the verb pass away means to go out of existence. Christ used this same verb, which is parokomai, in Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now since the third heaven is the abode of God, it is untouched by sin and needs no removal or renewal. Therefore the heavens that pass away refer to the stellar and atmospheric heavens. Isaiah and John describe the disappearance of these heavens. Isaiah states in Isaiah 34.4 that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. John uses similar imagery in Revelation 6.14. He states that the sky was split apart like a scroll. Both the stellar and atmospheric heavens will cease to exist with a roar. The term roar refers to a rushing or whizzing sound. Greek scholars believe this term is an onomatopoeia. That is a word formed from the sound it is naming, i.e. sizzle. The term is used to describe the sound made from the flapping of birds' wings, a spear hurling through the air, or the crackling of a fire. Peter uses this term to describe the sound that will be made as the heavens the atmospheric and stellar heavens, cease to exist. Second, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The term elements refers to the basic or rudimentary parts of something. The Greeks use this term to describe the four elements that make up the material world, earth, air, fire, and water. The verb destroyed means to dissolve, lose cohesion, or break apart. Thus, Peter is stating that the very building blocks of the material world will lose cohesion and break apart. And how this dissolving occurs is with intense heat or scorching fire. Third, the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, this third phrase presents some textual difficulty. The verb translated as be burned up means to be found or discovered. A literal rendering of the Greek text would read, the earth and its works will be found. Now in Greek, the term translated here, burned up, horisko, implies the idea of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Moreover, we are even found, horisko, to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Galatians 2.17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found, herisco, sinners. 2 Peter 3.14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found, herisco, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The Hebrew equivalent, matzah, is also a judicial term for judgment. 
Exodus 22, 8. If the thief is not caught or found, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. Ezra 10.18, among the sons of the priest who had married foreign wives were found matzah of the sons of Joshua, the son of Josedach and his brothers. Clement of Rome, AD 35-99, understood this phrase to be referring to divine judgment. In 2 Clement 16.4-6, quoting 2 Peter 3.10, it states, But you know, that the day of judgment, even now, cometh as a burning oven. And some of the heavens shall melt, and all of the earth shall be as lead melting on the fire, and then the hidden and open works of men shall appear or be found. This third phrase then means that the earth and the works done in it will be found or judged by God. It is a statement referring not to not only the judgment on the heavens and the earth, but the great white throne judgment. Thus, these three phrases parallel 2 Peter 3, 7. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So Peter's second admonishment is to not be ignorant about the end times. First, he assures us that the day of the Lord will come. Now in verses 11 to 13, Peter assures us, believers, that the day of God will come. Whereas the day of the Lord refers to all of the events beginning with the rapture and ending with the renewed heavens and earth, the day of God focuses on just three events. A sunrise, sunset, sunrise, and sunset. The renovation of the heavens and earth by fire, the renewed heavens and earth, and the merging of Christ's kingdom with God the Father's kingdom. Since all these things are to be destroyed, Peter says in verse 10, in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promises, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since all these things are destroyed, refers to the final judgment of the heavens and earth with fire. Having revealed this final judgment, Peter encourages us regarding what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. The verb ought implies a divine obligation. Conduct is to behave ourselves in a particular manner. We are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is holy or set apart to God. And godliness is outward reverence or piety towards God. It is living ethically and morally in a manner that is acceptable to God. And as to what these behaviors look like, one needs only to look to Peter's epistles. Holy conduct is addressed in Peter's first epistle whereas godliness is addressed in his second epistle. 1 Peter 1.15, Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. 2 Peter 1.3, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now the holy conduct and godliness of believers 
directly relates to the doctrine of eschatology. Peter states that we are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That verb looking for denotes the anticipation of a future event with trepidation. And the verb hastening refers to shortening the time till an event. That is, we who live in anticipation of the day of God will then demonstrate holy conduct and godliness. The holy conduct and godliness of believers will in turn speed up the coming of the day of God. Now for many, the idea of speeding up future events is startling. Some have tried to change the verb from the active voice to the reflective voice. Thus, instead of hastening, they translate the verb as long for. And despite the opinions of some, the verb conjugates as an active voice verb. Therefore, through holy conduct and godliness, we are hastening or shortening the time till the day of God. Shortly after Pentecost, Peter was preaching at the temple and commanded the people to repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3.19 Also, Peter previously stated that God had delayed the coming of the day of the Lord to provide people with the opportunity to repent. Therefore, repentance is key to either delaying or hastening these future prophetic days. If we truly wish to hasten the rapture of the church, the event which sets in motion the day of the Lord and by default the day of God, then we would be actively engaging in evangelizing the lost by proclaiming Christ's message to repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. Christ stated in Luke 14.23 that when the gospel has been preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, then the end will come. See, proclaiming the gospel, though, does not merely come from your lips. Instead, the gospel is lived out in holy conduct and godliness. Proclaiming the gospel by the lip without a life of holy conduct and godliness is powerless and only delays the coming of the end. As well, the preaching of the gospel is incomplete if it does not command people to repent of their sins. Luke 24, 46 to 47. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise up again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Inevitably, friends, sooner or later the day of God will come. And when this prophetic day comes, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Peter restates what he said in verse 10. Now he reveals how the heavens will cease to exist. They will be destroyed by burning. That verb destroyed is the same as in verse 10. It means to dissolve, lose cohesion, and break apart. Also, Peter reveals that the elements are the material world that will melt with intense heat. The verb melt means to dissolve or be consumed in a fiery furnace. Thus, the present heavens and earth will be dissolved in a fiery furnace and cease to exist. Now, if Peter stopped with the destruction of the heavens and earth, it would promote hopelessness. If there is no future and no hope, then people can live for the moment. However, as he mentioned in his first epistle, we have a living hope. And that hope includes residing in the new heavens and new earth. 
And thus Peter demonstrates the day of God brings a renovation of the heavens and earth by fire and a renewed heavens and earth. And Peter again here uses the term promise to refer to God's verbal pledges given in the prophecies of Scripture. Just as he has promised that Christ would come a second time, so God has promised a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The promise was first given to Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the heavens and the new earth which I made will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Now the term new here refers to the renewing of the heavens and the earth. It's a comparative term used to describe two different states. If the Greek term neus had been used, it would indicate something previously non-existence coming into existence. In other words, the old heavens and earth were not annihilated, but renewed. As Henry Alford states, the flood did not annihilate the earth, but changed it. And as the new earth was the consequence of the flood, so the final new heavens and earth shall be of the fire. Now what changes then will be seen in the new heavens and new earth? First, the creative realm will be freed from the curse. Romans 8, 20-22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, when Adam sinned, God cursed the earth, resulting in thorns and thistles. Genesis 3, 17-18 Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Thus there will be no thorns, thistles, or anything spawned by the curse in this renewed creation. Second, humanity will be freed from death, the consequence of sin. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. See, Adam's sin resulted in physical death. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Humanity will no longer experience death or the mourning, crying, and pain associated with it. Third, there will be no more sea. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now what is meant by no more sea? While it could mean that there are no more oceans on the earth, there are actually three better applications that are in line with Scripture. While one of these three interpretations may be the best, John may have had all three in mind. One, the term sea does not imply oceans. The term sea here refers to a large body of salt water partially enclosed by land. The fact that the term sea in Revelation 21.1 is singular implies that one body of water is in mind and that it has a definite article, indicates that a particular body of water is in mind. In Scripture, the sea typically refers to the Mediterranean Sea, 
Joshua 17.10. The south side belonged to Ephraim and the north side to Manasseh, and the sea, the Mediterranean, was their border. There is no more Mediterranean Sea because the new earth will be geographically different from the present earth. Two, removing the sea could be a symbolic reference to removing anything associated with certainty or fear. Christ used the roaring of the sea to describe the tribulation in Luke 21-25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Thus, the new heavens and new earth will not be a place of uncertainty or fear. Three, the removal of the sea could be a symbolic reference to removing the source of evil. In Revelation 13.1, the sea was used figuratively to refer to the beast empowered by Satan. If this interpretation is the case, it would mean that in the new heavens and new earth there will be no source of evil. Indeed, Satan will be cast in a lake of fire. Revelation 20.10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Finally, Peter states that in the new heavens and new earth, righteousness will dwell. This is an allusion to Isaiah 32.16. Justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. The verb dwell here means to take up permanent residence. In the New Testament, righteousness refers to God's nature and the character which God requires of man. That righteousness will dwell in the new heavens and new earth implies that God himself will take up permanent residence in the new heavens and new earth. And as well, the people who reside on this new earth will be characterized by righteousness. Believers, we cannot afford to be ignorant about the doctrine of God or the doctrines of the end times. By understanding the doctrine of God, we can be comforted by knowing that when God promises to do something, He will do it. Any delay in the fulfillment of His promises is not because He is indifferent or unable. Instead, it is because He has patience for sinners and is extending the time to repent. And because He desires all to come to repentance, repentance must be preached by all. Are you preaching repentance? Are you proclaiming repentance, not just with your lips, but your life of holiness and godliness? And by understanding the doctrine of the end times, we'll be encouraged to grow in holiness and godliness. And by growing in holiness and godliness, we will be hastening these coming days of prophecy. My friends, when the day of the Lord ends and the day of God begins, everything will be burned up. The heavens, the earth, and all of humanity's work. Sinners will be cast in the lake of fire to be tormented in its flame for all eternity. Only the righteous will inherit the new heavens and new earth. Only we will enjoy the blessings of eternal life, free from sin and the curse. My friends, I challenge you to make sure that you are the righteous. Make sure that you have repented and put your faith in the gospel that Jesus Christ died and shed his blood, buried and risen again the third day, according to the scriptures. Because if not, you and your works will be burned up and you will spend an eternity tormented in the flame of the lake of fire. Father God in heaven, I thank and praise you for the word that you give to us.
Lord, a startling word, to say the least. A word of difficulty in trying to understand some of these prophecies. But nonetheless, Lord, a word that assures us of who you are. You are the God who cannot lie. You are the God who is not bound by time. You are the God who keeps his promises. But Father, we're also reminded that the day of judgment is coming. And so, Father, as we consider these things, I pray that it would motivate us to strive to live in holiness and godliness. That we would conduct and behave ourselves in a manner that is pleasing to you. This is our obligation. And Father God, I pray that through our lips and our life, we'd be proclaiming the gospel of repentance. And in so doing, Lord, may we hasten the coming day of the Lord and the day of God. Father, I ask and pray for anyone who may be listening who's never taken that step of receiving the engraved word that is able to save their soul, that, Lord, today might be that day that they repent of their sins and that they place their faith in the finished work of Christ. We pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.